If I can invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes this morning from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Jesus said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. So good to be here with you all this morning as we're gathered here together to worship God. And this morning we're going to be continuing our sermon series where uh, we're looking at the greatest sermon that Jesus ever told, which is the Gospel of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7. Um, in this uh, sermon, Jesus gathered the disciples and other followers of him, and uh, he took some time to tell them of what his expectation was for them to act and for them to live in order to be known as followers of him. And so what Jesus wanted them to do is to know how they were to live differently and how their lives were to be examples for others to see of a life lived in response to his grace, of a life lived uh, in response to his forgiveness. And really, if we think about it in the big picture and after the, the resurrection, of, it's to show what it means to have a life lived in response to the new life that he offers us through his death and then through his resurrection life. Last week, we spent some time looking at uh, the Beatitudes in the worship service, which are eight statements or qualities that Jesus told his disciples that they were to follow or they were to model in their living to be known as Christians. And so the qualities would be ways that, that those who were not Christians were supposed to be able to look at them and see their faith at work in their lives. As I've thought about the words of Matthew and the way that he presents the Beatitudes as part of the larger Sermon on the Mount, I appreciate that Matthew is very specific in making sure that those of us who read his words know that the Sermon on the Mount is for us. This, these aren't words for the larger community. They're not words for those who are necessarily just starting to learn about Jesus, just starting to, to make the decision or choice of whether or not they are going to follow him. For Matthew, the Beatitudes are words that he is, Jesus is laying out that are marks or ways that you and I can be recognized as Christians in the way that we choose to live and demonstrate our faith within the larger culture and within the larger community. And so this morning we're reading uh, the passage of Scripture that, that follow the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. These verses are about salt and they're about light, and, and they follow the Scriptures that Jesus has, has already shared the Beatitudes as part of his Sermon on the Mount. And a misinterpretation of the Beatitudes might be, or might suggest a passive approach to the Christian life. And what Jesus is doing is he's kind of uh, taking uh, this next step to tell people, no, this is something that I'm actively talking about and actively expecting you to be a part of and to do. So where you might read the Beatitudes and say, you know, that, that this is a passage approach of Scripture, what Jesus is telling us is, no, this is something active that you need to be doing that we need to be doing as followers of him, that we need to be doing as people that, that follow God and as people who, who profess the faith. Listen to his words. 
He doesn't say you might be salt or you might be light, does he? If you go and read back the scripture from the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says you are both of these things. And when Jesus says you are, that's a pretty direct thing, isn't it? I mean, when my mom said, you are in trouble, I knew I was in trouble. And then when I, she said, you are going to have to talk to your father about this when he gets home, I knew I was in even bigger trouble, right? But isn't that what Jesus is saying here? And I'm not saying he's saying that we're in trouble, but what he's saying is he's saying to the disciples and to us, there's nothing else. You are going to be salt and you are going to be light if you are to be known as followers of me. These aren't passive commands that he's telling us. These aren't passive instruction that he's putting on us. And really what he's saying is that as followers of him, you and I cannot become complacent. Instead, we are to exhibit through our lives, through our decisions, and through our actions, the qualities and the characteristics that he has already listed in the Beatitudes and that he talks about later in this sermon. Because it's when we do these things that you and I will become noticeable like salt and will become noticeable like light in our world. Friends, I think that, that what Jesus is trying to get us to see and trying to get us to say and trying to get us to recognize and realize is that our faith is an active one. I was thinking this last week as, as I was thinking about the Scripture, and, and if you think about it, one of the greatest failures of you being a follower of Jesus or of me being a follower of Jesus is someone saying to us, I didn't know you were a Christian. What does that mean? It means that we're not modeling the faith, we're not exhibiting the characteristics that uh, the Beatitudes list out, or if we read later in Galatians chapter 5 where Paul lists the fruits of the Spirit, it means that we're not putting into action what we believe in our heads and in our hearts. It means we're not living to where our faith is evident and we are salt and we are light. There's a Wesleyan scholar and, and biblical theologian named Thomas Oden, and he wrote this phrase that I'm sure you can read from, I don't even, uh, it's not uh, unique to him, but, but in, in one of his commentaries on the Sermon on the Mount that I was reading, he wrote that Christianity is one of the most social of all religions. Actually, he didn't say one of, he said the most social of all religions. And I invite you to think about that, because what he says is Christianity is a faith that is meant to be lived in community. And what that means is inwardly we grow, because the only person that can accept Jesus is you for yourself. The only person that can pursue a life of prayer for you is you. The only person who can read the scriptures for you is you. The only person that can do all of these things and build up our inward selves is, is us, ourself. But then we are called, as our inward faith deepens, to be outwardly manifest in our actions, in the way that we choose to live our lives. And so we can't, as followers of Jesus, worship God inwardly while uh, inwardly growing in our faith without having some outward proof or outward evidence for others to see whether that's fruit or action, or thought, or deed, whatever it is. If we're practicing our Christianity in that way, then we're not practicing the Christianity that Jesus himself taught, 
that Jesus himself expected and that Paul and the other Christian uh, leaders of the church modeled. See, it has to be evident. It has to be evident in such a way that, that we don't within, withdraw. And if anything, our belief in Jesus should drive us to engage with others in an even greater way. Because it's active. You are salt. You are light. You know, in the times of Jesus, during biblical times, we, we often in the Gospels read about these different groups in the Jewish community that, that Jesus came into contact with. And, you know, the Pharisees are the one that I think that, that all of us have, have read and we're probably most familiar with because they were a group of, of Jewish laymen who uh, believed that salvation was to be achieved by the way or how closely someone followed the Old Testament laws. And so Jesus often came into conflict with the Pharisees because it was laymen that were following him around, listening to his teachings, watching what him and the disciples were doing. And often that's when they would say, well, how are you keeping the Sabbath? You know, if, if, the, if you were uh, uh, taking the, the kernels of wheat, the grains of wheat off of the stalks as you walk and eating them. Now there's another more lesser known group that Jesus may have been talking about when he was talking about this passage of Scripture. And they were called the Essenes. And they lived in, in Qumran, which you can see on the dot here, the big green dot near the Dead Sea. Qumran is, yes, um, it's out in the middle of the wilderness, and, and they set up kind of a commune there. And the Essenes, their purpose was to withdraw because of the faith from the larger community and culture. And say so they chose to practice their faith absent from everyone else. And they're famous today because, you know, Qumran is where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. There's all sorts of caves around this, this, facility, this area where they used to live. And they hid a bunch of their scriptures, their scrolls, their Torah, and, and other passages of, of the Old Testament in, in ceramic jars and then hid them in these caves in the wilderness around where they lived. Jesus took their practices on in the same way he took the Pharisees on. The Essenes called themselves the sons of light. It's really hard to be a son of light if you withdraw from the larger community, isn't it? And so it could be that when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking and he often takes on the Pharisees and their understanding, but it could be today that he's also calling out the Essenes and saying to the larger community, you can't be a son of light if you're not taking your light out into the world. I mean, the Essenes' stated purpose was to gather together and they would study the scripture and they would work and they would, um, you know, worship. And, and that was their life. They didn't believe in, in uh, no children were born in the Essene community because men and women stayed separate from each other. Um, you know, and they, they, they lived differently. And so Jesus could have been coming to, to, to the crowds and saying, you know, if you're going to be salt, you have to be light. You can't withdraw and, and take an inactive approach to your faith where you're only focusing on yourself. Because he says you have to be salt and you have to be light in community. There's no other option. And in biblical times, you know, we know that the, the function of salt, we know the function of salt for us today. Some of us don't need to eat as much of it as we do. Uh, but, you know, in biblical times, the, the two prime uses of salt were, one, to halt decay, so you would salt meat or other things to keep it from breaking down as fast, for keep it from, um, you know, becoming inedible as quick. And then we would use salt to, to add flavor. 
it doesn't matter what you're using it for, it still has to be salty to be used. Otherwise, it's just, you know, powder, it's just dust, it's just granules. It's ineffective if it's no longer salt. And it's not good for anything. And so Jesus uses the image and he says, you know, if salt loses its saltiness, then it should just be trod upon the road. It should be trod upon by animals and and humans and everything else. And so basically what he's saying is for salt to be good, it has to be salty. And then he says, you have to be salt. We have to be salt within the culture that we live in today. We have to be present in the culture to help halt decay, not by screaming at people, but by modeling the Beatitudes as the way of life that we believe Jesus calls us to live. But then he says we're also to be salt, and we're to bring salt to our culture by adding flavor to our relationships and to those that we are around. We cannot um, influence and impact the kingdom and the world around us if we're not distinct. And if we're not followers of Jesus. See, people can't experience God if you choose to live a life of faith that doesn't reflect your faith. That's how you have to be like salt. We're to be a distinct people, not set apart, not withdrawing like the Essenes into a wilderness community to live on our own, but we have to engage the culture because of our love of God, because of our belief in the resurrection. And because of our pursuit of biblical truth as we teach repentance and as we ourselves repent and choose to live in in greater likeness to Him. If we're able to do that, if we're able to to maintain our our Christian convictions with love and with grace, then people are going to notice that you're being useful to God's kingdom. And you're being like salt by, by bringing Christ into the world and into the culture, by uh, trying to, to arrest decay, and by also adding godly flavor into our world and our relationships. But then Jesus said we have to be light. Now this is a really simple metaphor. I mean, both of these are about... I can't think of a more simple metaphor that Jesus could use than salt and light, could you? Everyone in biblical times used salt. Everyone in biblical times used a lamp to light their home at night if they could afford the oil. And for Jesus to say that that you are to be like a candle placed on a stand, and then he's saying that you are to reflect the light of him wherever you're at. I have to think that people who listened to, to Jesus share this sermon when he said, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. I'm sure there were some of them that chuckled and went, well, why would you do that? Who lights a candle and puts it under a bowl? Whatever. But isn't that what he's saying to them? You know, he's using ordinary things to teach very important principles for us as followers of him and for us as as people who choose to to pursue a relationship with him. And and what he's saying is that that, uh, his light is to be placed where everyone can see it, not just in a hidden place. You know, and in the church, we model that. When we have our acolytes, they carry in the light of the world and they light the altar, the crosses on the altar. 
You know, that's to help remind us, right, that as Christ comes to the, into this place and, and God calls us to, to be the light of the world, that, that we are, are practicing that and we're modeling that in the way that our young people come in and light the candles and then they model it at the end of worship to remind us and show us that as Christ was in this place, now we're to carry that light of Christ out into the world. Because Jesus tells us that we're to be light. You're to be like lamp placed on a lampstand. And you're supposed to reflect the light of Christ as it's coming to you out into the world. You can't generate the light of Jesus on your own. I know there's been people that have tried. There's been people that have tried to do everything within their own faith, to, to believe that, that we are able to to do all of these things on our own. And I think what we find and what we know is that the only way that we're able to reflect the light of Jesus Christ in, from our lives is only when we're pursuing the light of Jesus into our lives and bringing it into our life. And then when we reflect that light, we do good works, we help others, we be the church. And we trust that God is going to take the things that we do and God is going to illuminate them so that others would see them, not so that you and I get a pat on the back, but so that God gets glorified. See, friends, to have our good work shine, it means to, to be put, putting the light into our lives so that we could put it out into the lives of others. As we teach, as we demonstrate, as we live the life of faith that God has given us through His Son, Jesus. Here's what Jesus is saying to us and being salt and light. Is you're not just rescued by the resurrection for your own sake. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died for the sins of the world. He did not rise from the dead just to give you life or me life, but He rose so that all who believe in Him would have life after death. And here's the thing. As He says, becoming a Christian is accepting a new vocation. And that vocation that you and I have taken on, whether we knew it at the time or whether we're growing into it now, is to represent God everywhere that we go. And in every relationship that we are in, we cannot be passive participants in the Christian walk. We have to be active. As you are salt and you are light. For God, for Jesus, and for the love that we have for others. Friends, I invite you now to prepare your hearts as we celebrate Holy Communion this morning. As I prepare the table, I'd like to remind you that this is God's table. You don't have to be a member of this church. All you have to be is someone who seeks to repent of your sin and be in relationship with Him. In a moment, I'll invite the ushers to come forward and the communion servers. We'll be celebrating communion this morning by intinction, which means you'll be given a piece of bread and you are invited to dip it in a cup of juice. If you'd like to spend time at the altar rail following uh, reception of communion, you, you may. If not, you may just return to your seat and spend time in prayer there. I invite you to hear these words from Paul's letter to the church in Corinth as he's telling them what he has learned about the Lord's Supper. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, 
and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, gave it to his disciples, and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this wherever you drink it in remembrance of me. Then Paul says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for these gifts that you have offered us, for this bread and for this juice, which are both simple things, but we know that through them you offer us great things. The gift of grace, the gift of forgiveness, and the opportunity for life anew. And so God, we ask that you would prepare our hearts now to receive these gifts, that you would take from us the burdens and the sins that we carry, the things that keep us from truly worshiping and following you, and that you would replace them in our hearts with the deeper love of your son Jesus and for a greater call and way that we are able to follow you. So God, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts, that you would make them be for us the body and the blood of your Son, Jesus, so that we might proclaim his death until he comes again. Amen.